Hello, everybody. Today is August 1, 2023. I'm honored to have as my guest, Christoph Westfall, who's the general partner and founder of Longwood Funds, which is a biotech venture capital fund. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Bob. And I'm honored to have you here today. Can you just tell us a little bit about what made you, what was the path that you followed to become a biotech venture capitalist? Uh, well, I never had a job until I was 29. So until then, I did my MD-PhD at Harvard Medical School. Uh, then I went to McKinsey, which is a consulting firm, because I wanted to kind of learn how business people dress and act. Um, and then after that, I had heard that there are these people that were described to me as folks who start companies, um, and they were described as biotech venture capitalists. I learned later, classical VC is investing in companies, but I always was personally drawn to starting and investing in companies. So that's how I ended up in venture capital at the ripe old age of 32. Okay. And what is what is Longwood look for when you invest in businesses? What are some of the signs they do? You know, I'm standing here on the 17th floor of the Prudential in Back Bay, Boston. Uh, and as I point in one direction, it's about a mile to Harvard Medical School. In the other direction, it's about a quarter of a mile to MIT. And then the third direction is about half a mile to Mass General Hospital. So here in Boston, really the most important innovation industry is biotechnology. And at Longwood Fund, we look predominantly at science coming out of Harvard and MIT. And the hope is to turn really important new science into drugs that can help patients in need. And at one point when you and I were speaking, you've talked a little bit about some transformative medicine. What's on the horizon? Yeah, I think you said when we were talking, I said, you and I are unlucky. We were born 20 years too early. Um, I think it's kind of amazing when you take a step back and you think about what's going to happen in the next 20 years. Um, many of our listeners may not be aware that the first effective medicine for Alzheimer's ever was just approved in the last month. It's an antibody against amyloid um, from a couple of biotech companies and pharma companies. And what's really important is for the first time, we're modifying the disease of Alzheimer's. And why does Alzheimer's matter? Well, about half of us right now, unfortunately, are going to develop Alzheimer's if we long, live long enough. The amazing thing when you look forward is there are going to be genetic medicines that prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. So not just treat Alzheimer's when we have it, but there are genetic medicines. One of my companies, Alnylum, which is a big public company now that I had founded years ago, 20 years ago, just reported with Regeneron, which is closer to your neck of the woods in New York, um, that they can reduce the levels of amyloid in the spinal cord of patients who are at risk of familial Alzheimer's. So I think in the next 10 years, people who are at risk of familial Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's, will have a drug that prevents the onset of Alzheimer's. But in 20 years, I'm really confident um, that many of us will be able to benefit from preventative medicines. So preventing us from developing Alzheimer's. Well, as an investor in four of your funds, I'm pretty impressed by what you're doing. But you and I have spoken a few times about the downturn in the biotech sector. What causes that downturn to occur and what causes it to change? Well, Bob, you're an amazing real estate investor and I try and do biotech and we're both old enough to remember multiple downturns. In our world, in biotech, this is the third very significant downturn in my 25 years 
of investing in and, and starting biotech companies. The first was 2001 to 2003. The second downturn was 2009 to 2011. And the current downturn feels at least as bad as those two downturns and started in about 2021 or 2022. Each time it took about two to three years, pretty much all of the generalist investors disappeared, valuations cratered, companies get shut down or downsized. And frankly, there are a lot of important drugs that lose their sponsors. So a lot of important medicines are no longer able to be moved forward. What happens in those periods is, you know, the asset prices, in our case, the price of drugs goes down. And if you are committed to the sector, these are the best times to invest, I'm sure, like it is for you in real estate. Well, I mean, Bernard Baruch, I think, once said that you want to buy when everyone's selling and sell when everyone's buying. So I guess this, I view it as it creates an opportunity for this. Yes. Or Lord Rothschild said, invest when you see blood in the streets. And we definitely right now in the biotech world, it really is one of the worst downturns I've seen, you know, with interest rates having gone up, all the risk assets are being priced down. And also there's one specific thing that's happened. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's changed the way that the government is reimbursing for medicines and it's increased the risk of drug discovery and drug development. So right now, a lot of these drugs and companies are really orphans. They don't have sponsors. And for people like you and me, now is probably a bit the best time to try and keep on investing in the space. So long as you have staying power, and obviously as your investor, I, I have staying power with you. So that's pretty neat about this. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's kind of the decade-long approach. I know you do that in your investing. Um, many of the things that I've invested in that have worked out the best went through near-death experiences and periods where, frankly, most of the people, including myself, had lost money on them. Um, it's always really hard to predict which ones work out. But in general, one thing that hasn't changed is there are about 10,000 diseases. Most of them have no current effective therapy. And all of us, everyone in society actually, really hopes for and wants to support new important therapies coming to market for all of these diseases that right now have no way to treat them. It, you know, it just keeps resonating with me how you, you've told me in the past and again today that we were born 20 years too soon. So it's pretty neat when you say, what what's going to happen in the future on this? But what are the signals that you look for when you invest in drugs or businesses or people? Or what do you invest in the drug, the business or the people or the people? Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly the question. And having done it for 25 years, and I bet you you have a pretty similar answer for me, even though our worlds are so different, real estate and biotech. For us, it's like a three-legged stool. One leg of the stool is world-class science and unmet medical need. So that's one leg. We have to see science that is truly differentiated, important, and new, addressing a disease that currently has no good therapies. The second leg of the stool is extraordinary people. I suspect that's very similar in your world of real estate investing. In fact, Many people in my world will say they'd rather invest in A people and B science than A science and B people. So really, in many ways, we're betting on the people, even though my world is technology and biotech investing. So the second stool being the people. The third is an interesting one. We're so capital intensive, and it costs about a billion dollars to bring a single drug to market. That's obviously beyond the scope of almost any individual venture capital fund. So we syndicate 
with other top tier blue chip investors. And we ultimately need to attract also pharmaceutical companies who have much deeper pockets than venture capitalists and biotech. So the three legs of the stool are great science and an unmet market. Uh, number two, the great people. And of course, number three is great co-investors and a strong syndicate. And how do you find these? I guess you're out in the industry. I mean, that's the secret sauce almost. How do you find these great investments? Yeah, my wife always says I should write a book, Biotech for Dummies. Um, it's 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 surprisingly simple. I'm a I'm a geek, a science geek. And if you could see right to my left, I've got a stack, a stack of nature science and cell papers. Those are the three most important publications in the scientific world. And every week, myself, and we have 15 full-time people here at Longwood, they're all MDs or PhDs, we're reading the top literature. And then the next filter for us, we're big believers in local, being able to walk to our companies, being all together. You know, I'm standing here in my office in Boston. We've been back in person every day for the last three years. Um, in startup world, being in person and in the office or in the lab, is crucial for, for success. So first thing is find great science out of great publications, typically at MIT and Harvard. Secondly, it's pretty hyper-local and, and the center of the biotech industry is here in Boston. And the third thing is really running it through our pharmaceutical colleagues. Um, you know, way back in my life, I had sold one of my companies to GSK, a major pharma. And, and I'm a big believer that you need to attract and you need to make take advantage of the expertise and these large pharmaceutical companies, they have a really good way of understanding late stage development and the markets in a way that's harder for early stage technologists. So look at the science, get the great people, do it local, work with great larger partners. And GSK is GlaxoSmithKline, just if someone is not familiar. Exactly. With for those of you in Philadelphia area, they have a big site there. And we, they, they do. Now, do you, before you invest, do you talk to the people at the pharmaceutical companies? and say, what do you think of this? Or what's your opinion? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's, I, I believe in knowing your customer. I know any good business person in any world, it's all about knowing your customer and what they're looking for and what they need. Interestingly, our customer tends to be the head of R&D or CEO of the 20 or 25 major pharmaceutical companies in the world. These are companies with a hundred billion market cap or more marketed drugs that are cash flow positive. And knowing your customer, in my case, means anytime there's really cool science out of Harvard and MIT published in Nature Science or Cell, where I think it could turn into a drug, I reach out to the dozen or so heads of R&D and CEOs that I know well in pharma, and I run that idea by them. It's too early for them to invest in, but I need to see pull from the marketplace, from our customers, and I need to see an opportunity that they may invest or do a deal with one of these biotech companies, because that billion dollars... I mentioned that it takes to develop a drug is just beyond the financial means of a simple venture capital fund. So when before it's sold to pharma, how much money is invested in these startup drugs before it's sold to a major pharmaceutical company? Typically somewhere between 50 and $500 million are going in from private and public investors. So either they're sold when they're still private companies or a drug is licensed when it's still private or after an IPO, which in our world is really just a financing event, not really a liquidity event, but it's it's large sums, but most of the money you need to get the thing across the drug, across the finish line, ultimately needs to come from larger companies, pharmaceutical partners. There are some rare exceptions, but that's usually how biotech works. Right. Well, this would be it for my students at Warden. You just made an IPO was more of a financing versus a liquidity event. 
So generally when there's an IPO, the insiders, are they really receiving a lot of money at that point? No. In biotech, it's a little bit different than tech. You know, if we're not in a bubble, tech is actually close to cash flow positive or cash flow positive when they're going public. Biotech, whether you're in a bubble or in a tougher environment, they are always cash flow negative. You mean um, the business, so the operations are in a negative. The operations, you haven't typically not launched your drug yet. And so you are still in the investment mode of running clinical trials typically. So a typical point where you might be a public biotech is after you have or near to having human proof of concept, which is in phase two studies. You typically have another five to seven years ahead of you before you're launching that drug and generating revenues, or and then another couple of years to cash flow. So when we go public in the biotech world, it is definitely not a liquidity event. Um, and generally, in fact, the venture capitalists are still participating to a modest effect. Most people buying the IPO are hedge funds or large mutual funds like Wellington or Fidelity. And so then you ride with it, and I guess they will probably liquidate some of their holdings over time in the future. Correct. It's kind of in a good situation, sort of one to three years after an IPO, assuming the company has done well, has generated good results. Maybe they've done another deal with pharma, or maybe they even get bought. That's the point where liquidity is achieved by a venture capital fund. Now, when you when you have this the company that's going public, or not when you invest in a, a company that has some drug. How do you know that someone else isn't doing the same thing, only their drug is better than yours or is further down the line than yours or is more interesting to the heads of R&D at the major pharma companies? Yeah, I'll answer that a couple of different ways. First, it's kind of interesting in our world, and this is different than the tech world, most things are publicly known. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, first of all, in order to raise money, most private biotechs have to communicate broadly and put out press releases. It's not like people are knocking down the doors and trying to put money into them. So any private biotech who's trying to raise money is telling everyone what they're working on. Secondly, any pharmaceutical company that has a promising drug will tout that drug. And so a large part of the diligence when you're looking at starting a company or investing in a company is looking at the competitive environment. And then the final point I wanna remind you is, there are 10,000 diseases, 99% of them have no drug. So we're in this world different than the tech world, where we're typically uh, in a situation that if you have something that works, you will have a market. So there's not a market risk, there's a technology risk in our case. Well, that that's my concern is that how do you know there's not another drug for some form of dementia that will be better than what we're investing in? Yeah, well, you don't know what's going to happen in the clinical trials, but you do know the 10 or 15 or 20 drugs that are moving forward in clinical trials. So they're all kind of known. There's a site called clinicaltrials.gov where every single clinical trial needs to be listed publicly. So you can look at everything that's in the clinic and see how do you stack up against that. What you don't know yet is how is your, gonna drug, how is your drug or mechanism going to compare com compared to the other things? Wow. And now what about when you when you find businesses, what happens if you found a biotech company that was 100 miles or 1,000 miles away from uh, Boston? Would you invest in them? Yeah, we've done amazing things out of UPenn and Chicago and Stanford, actually a bunch of companies. Typically, if we're starting a company, however, we want that company to be within five miles of where I'm standing here in Back Bay, Boston. So 
if it's a new company where you're building the team and building the science, you want everyone all together. Um, so typically, a lot of the companies actually out of other universities will be set up in either Boston or San Francisco. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty neat. So you have this whole ecosystem that's developed there of people and investors and... Uh, Correct. And, and, you know, Philadelphia in the cell therapy space, you probably heard of CAR-Ts, which have changed the face of certain previously lethal cancers. Um, so there's certain cell therapies that were actually pioneered and innovated at UPenn. And so there is, in that specific area, a very strong ecosystem in Philadelphia. Well, it sounds like you enjoy what you do. You do an awful lot. Um, what do you think we could see on the horizon? Anything in terms of um, new drugs or new therapies or new treatments that could come out? Can you share? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really love what I do. And I mean, just imagine, you know, pretend, Bob, you were a, an art collector and you really loved art. Well, I'm kind of like that. I'm a science collector and I really love science. So every day I get to talk to incredible professors at places like UPenn, Stanford, Chicago, MIT, and Harvard, and they've all made an amazing discovery. They're tremendously excited about that they think can change um, the treatment of a specific disease. So every day we get to talk to those folks and then we get to sort through those who have really cool ideas and great science, but maybe it's not gonna be a drug versus those where you can imagine translating it and forming that first team and getting going and that addictive part of a startup. You know, for you, I think it's when you probably buy an area of land to develop. That might be one of the most fun things. That's the world that I live in every day. I'm always starting new com companies. And do you find, are you ever putting people together that you have someone from the Midwest who has an idea and you're putting them with someone from the East or the North or the South or whatever? Yeah, it's kind of like, I know you're a baseball fan. It's kind of like you're putting together a team and every team, every team needs to solve for, you know, the veteran. Maybe it's not the best ball player, but it's someone who's been around, seen the ups and downs, can coach the younger kids. Got to have a great pitcher. In our case, the pitcher is the person telling the story, raising the money. Got to have a good hitter that in our case is uh, probably a really excellent scientist who's shown before they can discover and develop drugs. So you got to put that team together and then you got to hope and pray and have enough money. And then, you know, every once in a while you can win the championship. It's not every one of these that succeed. A number of them fail, especially in these more difficult times. You know, you do have extinction events. Well, uh, you know, I find it also pretty interesting that even though you're one of the owners of the Celtics, you're using baseball analogies, which so I, I appreciate that an awful lot on this. Now, what about when you put the, do you, I mean, it just seems like you enjoy what you do tremendously. And what if someone wants to raise money, are they making outreach calls to you? Yeah, I, you know, I can kind of sit on both of both sides of it. So half of what I do is really smart people who are, have started a company and they come to us. That keeps me in the market looking at the, we call them syndicated deals. So companies that have gotten started who are looking for money. And then half of my life is myself going out. Like we just did a spin out from GSK. You might've gotten that today, or you're going to get it called Salu, um, a spin out of a set of drugs. So half of my life is actually going out and pitching. And I'll tell you a funny story. You and I talked about our kids. I have five kids. My kids asked me, so dad, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I talked to a hundred people tell them what I'm doing. 99 tell me it's a really dumb idea. One of them gives me money and that's success. And they say, dad, that's a tough job. And I'm like, no, I love what I do. I love the impact we can have and it's worth it. 
pitching a hundred times, if you can hit one or, you know, for the baseball analogy, if you can hit 300, that's amazing. You're still missing seven at bats. Well, it's interesting that if you hit 300 for 10 years and you don't take steroids, you'll get elected to the hall of fame. What other profession could you fail 70% of the time and be lauded by the fans? And in your case, you're saying you could fail. People will reject you 99% of the time. And you still view that as successful, which I think is a, a great lesson for entrepreneurs. You can't get discouraged when you are rejected. Yeah, I mean, you must, when you teach your business school students, I'm, I'm sure you've seen so many kids come through. And I think this idea of resilience is the number one thing I look for in, in the teams and the scientists. And the number one thing I try to achieve is very hard myself. It's really, really hard when you fail. And I have absolutely failed several times in my life, but it's also exhilarating when you know you've done something very difficult where it's very likely you might fail and it succeeded. Um, And so this resilience to get through hard periods and go for the long period, not these successes are not measured in one month or six months or one year or two years. These successes are measured in decades. And I'm sure you have seen the most successful people in your field as well are people who can integrate across the years and have a vision of how they want to grow something over decades. Well, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint to use another sports. hundred percent. And you and I, I think, have to understand we're part of this value system. For me, I want to bring drugs to market. The companies that I've started have brought 20 drugs to the market. And I am not good at many of the things you need to do on the path to the market. Like I'm not good at running a company with five or 10,000 employees. There are people much, much better than I am. I'm not even good at running phase two or phase three studies. What I think I is my unique skill is bringing really great scientists together with the beginnings of the capital and turning a science project into a business. That first one or two or three years, that's what I think we are world-class at as biotech venture capitalists and founders. It's knowing what lane you're in and it's knowing how to complement your skill sets and replace yourself. And fact, you know, frankly, I need to fire myself. I have run public companies. It's not what I'm good at. What I'm good at is starting the companies and nurturing them. I need to find someone better than me to take them all the way to the promised land. That's pretty neat. Now, even though you said that we were born 20 years too soon. I am I am in agreement with you that I would not trade places with anybody else out there. And it just seems that it's an, ex, an extraordinary time to be alive and to be witnessing all these great discoveries that are happening out there. Do you have any closing comments that you'd like to say to anybody or say to everyone? You know, I think one thing I'd love us all to remember is Just take a step back at the amazing things that biomedicine has brought us, even just in the last decade. In less than a year, a set of biotech companies and pharma companies developed an effective vaccine for a completely new virus and turned something that is quite lethal into something that's absolutely manageable in the COVID situation. Not only that, but the industry developed oral uh, antivirals. Paxlovid is the best example that actually can treat if you're a high risk over 50 or unvaccinated that can really significantly reduce mortality. Secondly, 
many cancers that were previously lethal. So all the childhood leukemias that were lethal in the 50s or 60s are now 80 or 90% curable. In the last 10 years, melanoma, um, metastatic melanoma has moved from a uniformly fatal disease to a disease that has effective therapies. Then let's just look at the last couple of years. Um, for anyone who's on listening to this show, obesity. For the first time, there are effective and safe therapies, Munjaro by Lilly and Wegovi and Ozempic by Novo, that are highly effective at leading to 10 to 20% weight loss and treating diabetes. These are things we could have only dreamed of 10 years ago. And then you and I started the show by talking about Alzheimer's. I think in 20 years, people are going to be like, wow, all these people who are dying with Alzheimer's, what a shame. We know how to treat that and prevent it. So that's the amazing future I think we're looking at. Well, God willing, you and I will be around in 20 years to talk about this. Just, I think we will. You know, there's such great medicines. That's the plan. That's the plan. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Also, when I was growing up, people used to go into the hospital for exploratory surgery. You don't even hear that term anymore. Because yeah, of imaging. Imaging is so amazing. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm not a shareholder and it wasn't involved, but the, the gallery test by Grail where I was an investor, but Illumina bought them, you can get a test, a blood test now that with 60, 70% accuracy can tell you whether you have an early cancer or not, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer. That's amazing. A lot of people aren't using that, but I just did that a couple of weeks ago. That's neat. That's really neat. Well, if there's nothing else, you've been very gracious with your time and even more gracious with sharing information. And I really appreciate this. And as one of your investors, I'm thrilled that I'm you allowed me to be part of the team. So thank you very much. Well, Bob, thank you. And, and as George Merck said, he said, uh, it's all about making the drugs. If we make good drugs that help people, the profits will come. So we really appreciate you along the road for the journey. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.